Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. This week in the Jewish communities throughout the world, a new book of the Torah has begun being read. This is the third book of the Torah. Five books are the complete canon. We've already had a discussion on Jewish faith and Jewish facts uh, about the book of Genesis, Bereshit in Hebrew, Shmot, known in Exodus in English, and now we are beginning our exploration of Vayikra, known from the Latin and Greek as Leviticus. Um, Vayikra is the beginning of an in-depth exploration of the temple sacrificial cult. It will uh, explain to the Israelites and to those of us who read it on a regular basis, the intricacies of the roles of the priesthood and the intricacies of various forms of sacrifice. Of course, today, following the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 of the Common Era by the Romans, um, that sacrificial cult no longer is the focus of Israelite worship. Those of you who are Jewish and those of you who know members of the Jewish community will recognize that we practice a very different form of religious life than will be described in Leviticus. And the task for each of my guests during our conversations on the book of Leviticus is both to explicate what is found in the book and help you, the listener, understand its meaning as it relates to our practices and beliefs today. And each of my guests, each and every week, when not discussing a Jewish holiday, will help you to make that transition from what is often called Israelite religion to what we call Judaism. So let me give you an overview of this week's parasha. As I've already said, it's known in Hebrew as Vayikra, and in English it usually is translated as, and he called. It uh, starts in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, and continues through chapter 5 of Leviticus. In this parasha, in this weekly reading, God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting and communicates to him the laws of the korbanot, the animal and meal sacrifices brought in the sanctuary. And it lists for the reader the following sacrifices. The olah, which is translated as the ascending offering, that which is raised to God by the fire atop the altar. The five varieties of meal offerings, known in Hebrew as the mincha, prepared with fine flour, olive oil, and frankincense. The peace offering, the shlemim, whose meat was eaten by the one bringing the offering, and after parts are burned on the altar, and the leftovers are given to the kohanim, the priests. 
And then we are told that there are different types of sin offerings. In Hebrew, they are called chatat, brought to atone for transgressions committed erroneously by the high priest, the entire community. And of course, in the Torah, it lists the fact that the chatat sacrifice would be made by the king um, and by the normal, regular Israelite. The guilt offering, the asham, brought by one who has misappropriated property of the sanctuary, who is in doubt as to whether he transgressed a divine prohibition, or who has committed a betrayal against God by swearing falsely to defraud another human being. These are the basic rubrics known as the korbanot, the sacrifices. With me this morning to help us understand what they are, what they were, and how they impact on Jewish life and historical memory is Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg, who is the senior rabbi of Temple Israel in Ottawa, Canada. Rabbi Michaelberg is one of the few homegrown Canadian rabbis, having been born in Vancouver, British Columbia, and actually having been raised in the reform movement. He had the unique opportunity to serve his home congregation, Temple Shalom, in Vancouver as an assistant rabbi, and in 2011, became the Associate Rabbi of Temple Sinai Congregation of Toronto. Since 2019, Rabbi Michael Berg has been the Senior Rabbi of Temple Israel of Ottawa, and in the last two years, he was appointed as Chair of the Reform Rabbis of Canada. It is great joy that I welcome again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Daniel Michael Berg. Thank you, Rabbi Garden. What a privilege to be here. Always fun to delve into these the Torah portions with you. Um, and I'll share that now as we transition into Vaikra, as we transition into our third book of Torah, this is the time I always savor with our Bar and Bat Mitzvah students. Um, for our Bar and Bat Mitzvah students who have their celebrations in the fall, um, in the winter, they get to speak to the stories of Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, continue onwards and onwards. For our friends in the winter, they have the amazing story of Moses and Miriam and Aaron and that walk from slavery to freedom. But then we have our friends, and actually I'm one of them, I, uh, with my birthday approaching. I had the great opportunity to delve deeply into sacrificial offerings. And it's always fun with, uh, with our young teens as they look to their Torah portion for the first time and they say to themselves, huh, is this really what I'm going to talk about? Particularly this week's Torah portion that isn't subtle and talks about all the precise details of preparing the offering which can be quite gruesome um, at times. And inevitably, this leads to a conversation such as, is this really relevant for today? How does this continue to speak to our community? Um, and it leads to beautiful conversations. Um, and the answer is yes. And I always like to say it's the more difficult Torah portions that become the most meaningful. 
It's that as we look to these practices that, needless to say, we do not do anymore, we have the opportunity to learn, to grow, to explore, to find parallels. And so as we look to the ancient practice of offering sacrifices, it is quite remarkable to see how prayer and devotion and various offerings of the soul have evolved in really quite a parallel and linear direction similar to the ancient sacrifices. And perhaps a good place to start is to look at the Hebrew word for a sacrificial offering, which is korban, which comes from the root letters of the Hebrew word likrov, meaning to draw near. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with Hebrew, Hebrew is a language in which both nouns and verbs are built upon three-letter roots. And we add prefixes and suffixes, and we play with the vowel known as nikudot to transform these three root letters into either a noun or a verb. Um, and so it is quite uh, common, as Rabbi Michael Berg is now going to share with us, to see um, multiple meanings. And what we reveal is that oftentimes the case, our, 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 our translation into our vernacular doesn't share the same um, nuance that is revealed in the Hebrew. And so we have this term korban for sacrificial offering. But as we look to the root letters that look to the verb likrov, meaning to draw near, we recognize that this act of offering sacrifice was intended to draw near to God. And I suggest that that's perhaps a little bit ironic, because particularly for our vegetarian listeners, to, um, to imagine the scene of preparing an animal for sacrificial offering is perhaps the least thing that one would do to draw near to one's faith or, 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 or the eternal. What, what I would encourage us instead is to imagine this as theater and to think about all of our senses. And to think about what it would look like, what it would smell like, what it would feel like to witness the practice of bringing something quite dear, of giving it to the priest, and of witnessing it go up in flame. Such process you know, is really quite beyond what we, what we, how we typically approach religion today. But to imagine such process as ritual is really quite beautiful as we delve into the mystery that represents our belief that speaks to our faith. It's uh, fascinating how you've um, helped the listener with two essential words that may not have been uh, primary to you, but as you were speaking, I recognized um, your intent. Namely, you said that the offering was something that was dear that was of value to the individual making the offering. We take for granted, given how we purchase uh, meat or even um, sustenance, uh, flour and oil, it's all packaged. But in antiquity, one raised the animal uh, that one was now going to offer, and one raised the grain and transformed the grain into flour, 
and uh, cultivated olives, which you turned into olive oil. They truly were gifts of your hands that were dear to you. And in another circumstance, you might have traded that for other commodities to help you survive. And the other word that you used, which I loved, was the notion um, of theater sensory overload. You suggested that as the individual uh, watched, all of his or her senses were um, infused with this behavior, which, of course, um, is so different from the normative way we think about ritual today. And maybe to use that to jump, since the time of the destruction of the temple, we, we, we have no longer been making offerings in, in this way. Um, and in fact, our first rabbis, post-destruction of the temple, were faced with a dilemma of the soul. What would replace the sacrificial offering? And prayer is what commonly uh, spoken to um, as the means to, to connect to the emotions in the same way that one used to rely um, with with prayer with uh, sacrifice and and to the priest, um, we do look to spiritual leaders, to rabbis, to take a leadership role. But we also recognize that it's a shared responsibility, and certainly, perhaps as now as we delve into each of these types of sacrifices, what we witness is actually there are different types of prayer. There are different ways to uh, to connect to the divine, and we could learn from each of these different types. Um, really recognizing that one size doesn't fit all and that there are opportunities where I look to connect in this way and there are opportunities where I look to connect in, in, in that way. And how beautiful to witness, in this case, five different examples of five different ways to connect. So before you do that, which I, I, I hope our audience will find interesting, perhaps you can share with our audience um, your uh, the etymology of the word avodah, sir, because it fits with your notion of korbanot and lahakriv, and now we have um, a similar um, usage of language. So, as we looked at avodah, if we were translating in the modern sense, it's work, as in any of the occupations that we might have, but not in the religious sense. And as we think about Avodah in, in terms of how we approach our, um, our faith, our, our, our religion, I would translate it as sacred labor. Um, again, seeing that connection to work, but recognizing our responsibilities, our obligation um, to bring out the sacred, to draw out the divine. And so as we witness each of these things and take note, offering a sacrificial offering certainly couldn't simply be done whimsically. It needed to be incredibly careful, in, uh, the, the, the purest of intention. Uh, we needed to bring our whole selves. And similarly, prayer, or the various rituals that we do at its best, are also called to, um, to parallel um, such care and intention. Otherwise, to be honest, it's of no avail. It's just going through the motions. Our rabbis of antiquity often called prayer avodat lev, the work of the heart. And they also use the word avodah as a synonym 
for sacrifice, because there too it was clearly um, avodat yadayim, the work of your hands. Um, and that parallelism might help our listeners recognize um, the transition that the rabbis, a seamless transition that the rabbis tried to make. So help us understand these uh, five forms of sacrifice and how they manifest themselves in today's religious life of the uh, member of the covenant. So for our first five chapters, we have five distinct types of offering. And it reminds us of the, of the different ways to, um, to make such, um, such sacrifice. The first one is referred to as Ola, um, which can be translated as burnt offering. This was looked at as a voluntary sacrifice with a high degree of sanctity. Um, for lack of better words, it was basically the typical offering. Um, interestingly, the entire animal except for the hide was burned on the altar. And so what that meant was that none of it would be eaten um, by the priest or the worshiper. Um, it would all be consumed. And just to imagine, and you know, going back to the conversations I have with our Bar and Mitzvah students, I often push them, think about bringing that which is most valuable to you. So for example, bring your smartphone to offer as sacrifice to the Lord. How would that feel? And needless to say, that is often greeted with a gasp. But that's the uh, that's the type of ask in in this um, in, for this offering to bring the first of your crops of your animals, that which is most valuable, that which is seemingly without blemish, and to offer that into to God and to seek nothing in return. And so we what we witness here is the type of giving of ourselves that is incredibly valuable, perhaps in monetary ways or perhaps in personal ways, to know that you will no longer be able to connect to that fill-in-the-blank as you had before, and to do so as a symbol of your faith and dedication. So that takes care of the Ola. There really isn't a prayer that is called an Ola prayer, but perhaps the second category um, if your list is in order as mine, of the meal offering um, is an interesting example of that transition because the meal offering is called mincha. Yeah. So we recognize already with mincha um, the term that we use that represents a type of prayer um, in our community to, to, to come and to offer mincha prayer, afternoon prayer, um, but translated it it means meal offering. And as such, as we look to what this type of sacrifice, sacrifice made, it would often take the, the form of flour and oil and salt and, and frankincense. And unlike the previous sacrifice, the priest would be able to eat it. I used examples of, uh, of, of this type of offering in the midst of COVID when many of us were confined to our homes and to think about the meals that we had that they in itself, to join as family, um, even if we had a little I uh, iPad on the phone and we were, we, were, we were connecting to a distant relative, but to make this type of offering, that which we typically do for a feast, whether it's a special occasion, an anniversary, a Shabbat, to share in this together, 
similar to we sharing in the challah, is a communal experience and a means to recognize that it's as we bring ourselves, we also have the opportunity to join together. Um, for those who may not have caught uh, what the rabbi was referring to, challah, which is also a different type of offering, is the braided bread that is eaten on Shabbat and on Jewish festivals. And so there is a reminder in uh, that tradition of this kind of offering. And the bread itself is fairly simple. Uh, often people do make it with fine flour and with olive oil uh, rather than other forms of oil. And it's fragrant. Um, as opposed to, let us say, a pita or a white bread, um, that the intent of Shabbat bread is to uh, make it celebratory, as if you're making an offering. And there's something quite magical about smelling right. the challah cooking in the oven. And, uh, you know, typically only happens on Friday or, or leading into a holiday. Um, and it lifts one's spirit as one imagines the gift of Shabbat that is that is soon to approach. Lovely. Uh, what a nice image for uh, all of us to have, and especially for our listeners who may not uh, be baking challah or smelling it on uh, Arab Shabbat Friday night or on Jewish festivals. Um, in the time that's left, can you pick two of the other remaining um, sacrifices and help us make the uh, transition from that very uh, theatrical behavior in the altar in the ancient temple to how it manifests itself today in our lives. Sure. So I'll, I'll just say with a one line, number three, Zevach Shlamim, which is often uh, referred to as a sacrifice of well-being, we see in Shlamim the root letters Shin Lamed Mem Shalom, meaning peace. And so we recognize that with that which we do as we bring ourselves, it's intended to bring us a type of peace, um, a type of wholeness. And sometimes that takes the form of making a promise to ourselves or our loved ones or to God, um, intended to better ourselves and to head in different directions. But perhaps we'll, we'll conclude today as we look at the fourth and the fifth, we can look at them together, Chatat and Hasham, which both speak to sin offering, though they differentiate between um, the type of sin offering for an act that was unintentional, and then conversely, uh, the, the offering that takes the form of a punishment of sorts, a penalty offering for such action that was done um, with malice. And so the, the former being chatat, a sin offering, this was an, oblig an obligatory sacrifice that was offered for unintentional sins. Um, one of the ways it differed, actually, was the blood of the animal was used in a demonstrative way. Um, it's often translated in modern sense, this term chatat as missing the mark. Um, and then finally, but the last one, asham, you know, it's an obligatory sacrifice that was required chiefly for one who has misappropriated property. And so this gift takes the form of damages in the, um, in the modern sense. And as we these types of offerings, really it takes us to Yom Kippur and thinks us of our process of saying sorry and recognizing that there are those things that we say sorry for in the communal sense, but there are also those things that we say sorry for quite directly for, the, um, for, the, for those times where we've missed the mark and need to do better.
And in fact, both those words find them uh, primary role in the Yom Kippur liturgy. We have a prayer called the Ashamnu, which is a list of uh, opportunities in which we've missed the mark. And of course, we say um, Chatat, Al-Chait Shechatanu, Chatati, I have sinned. Um, And so our rabbis of antiquity recognizing that the temple sacrificial cult um, no longer would um, have a hold on the community of Israel, um, made this wonderful uh, transition to using the vocabulary in the Yom Kippur service. And again, this notion, it's not good enough just to say, I'm sorry, just like it's not good enough just to simply bring any old offering. Rather, if, if, if the apology is to mean something, we need to bring our whole selves. It needs to be from the heart. It needs to be thoughtful um, and meticulous. And so we're reminded with these physical offerings to look to the means that we can replicate that spiritually to, to, so our behavior models the same dedication that the biblical text emphasizes. You began our conversation this morning, Rabbi, by speaking about how challenging it was um, for young people at the age of Bar and Bat Mitzvah, 12 and 13, to deal with this, although you certainly found it fun. Um, When you think about it, um, how easy is it for 13-year-olds or any young person to kind of um, understand the depth of conversation that you've offered to our listeners this morning about sacrifice and coming closer to God. So look, no question that our teens are very much engaged in very difficult questions of the soul and belief in God. And, um, you know, I don't want to belittle, uh, um, you know, the struggles that they have. Though what I do often share with them is I revel in the Bar and Mitzvah student. There isn't one this week. And in our temple, but I revel in the Bar Mitzvah student that receives a Torah portion like this um, and needs to really dig deep um, in order to make it meaningful. And I have yet to meet a Bar Mitzvah student that doesn't receive a difficult portion like this and find meaningful ways to draw parallels to modern times and really demonstrate um, how much we continue to connect with our uh, brethren that have walked this pathway before us. I want to thank you for your insights. Um, this Shabbat is also Shabbat HaChodesh, the beginning of the month in which we will observe a Passover. A number of our uh, future shows will be about Passover, and this year Passover and Easter, as well as Ramadan, um, have a uh, communal uh, impact on us as they come so close to each other. And so future shows, we will be leaving our exploration of the weekly parasha to delve into the text of Passover and its connection to Easter. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel, Ottawa, for helping us begin our exploration of the book of Leviticus. You can hear a recording of this morning's conversation on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a podcast on CHRI.org. Uh, 
um, CA or on iTunes or anywhere that you download your podcasts. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good day and shalom. Shalom.